Hello, welcome to Bel Air Radio. This is your host, Destiny Collins. Right now, we're going to talk about a special visit that we had this past week in the studio with Andreo Fanatic Heard, Grammy Award-winning producer. In his career, he worked with artists such as Michael Jackson, Beyonce, and Little Kim. Now he's making his home in Greensboro, North Carolina, and is spreading his talent to new artists. Here's my interview with Andreo Fanatic Heard. Hello, welcome to Destune with Destiny Collins, and I'm here with Andreo Fanatic Heard, Grammy Award-winning record producer. How are you doing? I am great. It's good to be home. That's good. Mm -hmm. um, you are from Greensboro, correct? Yes. What I, made you um, come down here to start a business like this? Well, uh, I started off here in Greensboro many years ago, and uh, then I spent a lot of time in New York and L.A., and just working in those cities, I found that you're really just collecting checks there. You're not really, uh, it's really hard to build your, com your, uh, your company without the support of the community. Mm -hmm. And I've been working in the business so long and eventually you get into that place of being a servant to the community and to the universe. And so I wanted to come back home and I wanted to help other artists, uh, you know, find their way in the music business. For some who don't know what a record producer is, like. What do you really do? Record producer, um, he's the guy that has the vision for the song. Um, I have this gift where I can hear the whole song in my head before anything is recorded. So I know what everything sounds like from start to finish. So then from there, I know how to go and get the right people to bring the vision to life. Growing up, I went to Greensboro Day School, which I was like the only black kid in my class. And so they would turn me on to so much pop music. So I knew every type of classic rock and pop music during that time. And then when I would come home, you know, I would be with my friends and we would listen to soul and R&B. So I got both of those things on a regular basis for like nine years of my life. So, you know, when it comes now to producing records, I can channel, you know, a Paul McCartney record and mix it with a, uh, you know, Parliament Funkadelic record or, or, you know, just channeling different genres of music. So I always tell people to like fuse different genres of music and you'll create something new that hasn't been created before. Where did your love for music begin? Oh my gosh. Uh, probably early in the household, uh, my dad was uh, playing James Brown records and uh, buying me Michael Jackson um, and the Jackson 5 albums and things like that. So just always music in the house growing up. Uh, my parents were always playing soul music in the house. And so I was always into it. And then hip hop came and just like changed my whole life. So what was your favorite member of the Jackson 5? I mean, Michael, of course. Uh, <laughs> he was just this phenomenal uh, little kid that could really sing and really interpret songs almost like uh, he had been through those experiences itself. And, uh, you know, as a producer, later on, I, um, that kind of resonated with me. I always like to work with artists that can interpret uh, songs very well. So how did you go from listening to music to now producing it? Well, hip hop came and it was this big thing that, uh, you know, was starting to grow and people were getting into it. And to, to be, uh, the, the thing was, when you wanted to do music before, it was very expensive to get into a recording studio. It was very expensive, you know, to own the instruments and, and play the instruments. But hip-hop, you didn't really have to do that. It was just more about a DJ and, you know, an MC 
or a drum machine or you know just a very it's very easy to produce the music so uh, when I got into high school I connected with a DJ that uh, actually used to buy records all the time and I would listen to them and then I started writing uh, raps myself so I became an MC and we would record uh, songs all the time at his house he had a connection to the radio station so we went from recording songs on cassettes in the house to getting them played on the radio they had this uh, morning show and we would get our, our records played in the morning as we were getting dressed to go to school you would have the radio on you would hear your songs on, on uh, getting played on the radio so when you go to the first period everybody's talking about it like we heard your song on the radio coming from the school that I was at I didn't have like a whole lot of social skills so when I got to public schools I didn't really know how to talk to girls and I was very shy but music was something that brought me out of that because when you do music, everybody's checking for you. Then you're the cool guy, then girls think you're attractive. <laughs> All these different things happen because now your records are being played on the radio, you're doing shows and people you know, recognize you. So you're, you know, it changes all that and it gives you confidence and you become this new person that you morphed into that is very confident and outgoing. So I do like that aspect of it, but more than anything, I like, being able to create something in my head, bring it to life in the studio, go out and perform it, and see it resonate and touch people and have them feel something from it. Was your mom kind of like, you know, braggadocious, telling like, yeah, that's my song uh, on the radio? She didn't know, because at the time it was hip hop. So <laughs> she didn't even really recognize it as it was music at the time. Mm -hmm. She just thought it was like, I don't know what that is I'm listening to, but if you say that's you, that's, that's cool. But she didn't. It didn't really resonate with her at the time like it was a big deal. It was to me, though. <laughs> so. so after school, where was the first place that you go to start your music career? Um, so when I graduated from high school, um, I went to music school down in Atlanta at the Art Institute of Atlanta. And there, it was like my mom told me, you either have to go to school or you have to, you know, get a job or whatever. But she really wanted me to go to college. So I was like, if I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go to music school. It was a good experience for me to be away from home and be into the music business somewhat, but I probably wouldn't have went to music school because I found later on that I learned more about the music business actually just networking and just diving into it. You know, I would go back and forth to New York City and we would just network and just go into different studios or just hang out in front of studios and, you know, with an opportunity, trying to find an opportunity to get in there and work or, do, or meet somebody that we could produce records on. After music school, I came back home to Greensboro and uh, we started an independent record label out here called Payroll Records. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like the producer of all the acts that were on the label. At the time, I didn't know that it was producing. I was just the guy that was making the music because I, I had a vision for what the song should sound like. And we were able to get our records played on the radio in New York City. So we were like one of the first acts from outside of New York City that were getting our records played on the radio. And it was kind of like a big thing um, because a lot of the kids that lived in New York City and went to school at A&T and Bennett were hearing the records at home on the New York radio when they went home. So then when they would come back here, they would tell people, those guys are getting the records played on the radio up there. Like, so it kind of made us, like that was like the co-sign that made us official. Like, no, they're really good because they're getting the <laughs> records played on New York radio, which was a very tough market to crack. Yeah. So 
once we started getting our records played there, a lot of those artists would come down here and do shows and uh, we would open for them. So the record label um, started to take off and was, you know, doing its thing out here. We, I produced like three different acts um, on the label, actually four. And uh, one of the girls actually went to Bennett. Her name was uh, Entice. You know my that? mother, yes, oh. my mother told me about her. She yeah. said um, she went to Bennett and she she was on a Wu Tang Clan yes. song. Yes. Okay. Yes, she was nice. one of the first artists that I produced. And that record helped her get her record deal with uh, a label out of New York City. She was one of the first artists to work with the RZA and Method Man. Oh, okay. Like that was like the first, first, first one to ever do a record with them, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I was producing all the acts here, and um, eventually we were about to get a distribution deal with Atlantic, but um, had some problems with the lawyers, and uh, they had this thing called cross collateralization, where it meant like. If one artist gets, um, they're gonna sign one artist, but if that artist doesn't sell, I mean, if the, if the other artists don't sell, then they have to take it out of the budget of the main artist. So, mm. so at, at the time we were looking at it like it was a bad thing, but in retrospect, when you look at it, it was like, it was all one camp. We were all producing each other. So, I mean, I was producing all the acts anyway, so we should, probably should have signed the deal, but we didn't and we ended up sp splitting up. So everybody went their separate ways, and at that point, um, it was just coming back and forth to New York City networking. Um, we didn't give up, we never stopped. You know, what I, what I found in the record business is you're gonna constantly find different roadblocks as you're you know, progressing in your career, but the thing about it is, you can't stop. If you believe this is what was meant for you to do, you have to keep going. And I never, ever felt like we weren't gonna make it. I probably worked every every job around fast food restaurant in Greensboro, but um, it was more about the music. So all these jobs that I would work out here, it was like, it didn't matter to me if I got fired tomorrow because I had to go to New York for a show or to work in the studio or whatever. It was more about the music than it was about you know any job or whatever. We didn't have any money, but we were always just focused on trying to make it in the music business. When you went to New York, where did you get your first big deal? So we were, we would go back and forth and we would hang in front of this place called the Hit Factory, which was like a prominent studio in New York with Bad Boy and Rockefeller and Murder Inc. and all these different record labels recorded oh, at. So you met P. Diddy? Yes. <laughs> so, so, so this is the thing. So when we were there, a friend of ours told us that Biggie was working in the studio at the Hit Factory. And so he was there like every night. So we would go and hang out in front of the studio. And so one day they came, came to the studio and we name dropped somebody's name. Mm -hmm. And he said, come upstairs. We told him we had music. So one thing that I learned a long time ago was just always be prepared. Always have your music ready, always be prepared. So I had my music on a CD, where most people had it on dats and cassettes. I had it on a CD. Because when you put it on a CD, I learned you know, in the A&R meetings, you could just fast forward to the next track. If they didn't like this track, you could just go to the next track immediately. So I started playing them tracks. I was going through tracks, going through tracks, going through tracks, and they weren't saying anything. So it was like uh, I finally got to the end, and I was like, I appreciate your time. Um, thanks anyway. 
And so I was, as I was walking out, he was like, play track number 9, 15, 26, 32. He started naming all these numbers. What I didn't realize is that he was writing down the numbers as I was playing the tracks the whole time. So that's how he picked the uh, Crush On You record that I ended up doing. So he took the track. We, uh, we went in the studio with Mace and Cameron and Biggie, and they were writing the lyrics, and we recorded the song for her. You got to hit me off by this girl gifts, of course. So I look sick in my six with my Christian LaCroix. I know you see me on the video. True. I know you heard me on the radio. True. But you still don't pay me no attention. Listening to what you I had this uh, hip-hop artist out here that I, I put a record out on. And it was playing on the radio. And Vincent Herbert happened to be driving through Charlotte. And as he was driving through Charlotte, their song came on the radio. He called the radio station because he knew the DJ. And he asked him, who, who is that? And so they told him who we were. And so he called me. And um, at the time, I was going through a low period in my career because, you know, in the music business, you'll find that you'll go through ups and downs. There'll be times when you'll be up financially. Everything is great. You'll have music out. And then you'll go through a low period where your finances are gone, you're not moving any music, things are just seem dark. So at that time, we were like in this, me and my partner, my, who was managing me at the time, we were living in this house with no electricity. It was, it was dark. <laughs> it was just like a really bad time, nothing was happening. And then all of a sudden, I got that call from Vincent and he was like, two days later, uh, he asked me to come to the studio and play him some music. So he came to Greensboro, we went in the studio, and I played him about 60 tracks. And what it was is that he was so impressed at how much music I had. So he uh, heard the music, and next thing you know, we were in New York City in some five-star hotel overlooking the Hudson River and waiting to sign our deal. So um, he signed me to his production company, and he signed this rapper I had called Omniscience, who is uh, out of Bear Creek, North Carolina. And so... Uh, we started working on the album. Some things happened and Vincent wasn't really focused. Uh, you know, he was producing other artists and things like that. So the, the deal fell apart and we ended up um, getting dropped. We ended up moving back to North Carolina again. And uh, I just started doing music again. And then a friend of mine who went to Howard by the name of Ramon Herbert was working for Puffy. And so P Diddy like, um, he told him about me, he played him a couple of tracks, and he told me to come up and he wanted me to meet with him. So I went to New York City, I met with him. Once again, I played him like 75 <laughs> tracks, and he was blown away by like how much music I had and the work ethic that I had. And so he was like, uh, I wanna work with you, I wanna sign you. So while I was there, I produced records for Biggie, um, I produced records for Mace, um, I was doing a lot of production. But at the time, he was going through his, uh, he had a, like a gun charge for Jennifer Lopez or something like that at the time. <laughs> yeah. So he was so focused on um, his trial that he wasn't really focused on the production company. So we weren't really getting the attention and the push that, that I thought we were going to get being over there. So when it came down to it, I ended up not signing with him. I stayed over there for like a year and a half just working and producing records and he didn't ask me to sign the contract so I didn't mention it 
Mm -hmm. You know, and then one day he came in and he said, what's going on with the contract? And I was like, oh, we're still negotiating. And then like a month later, he came in and asked me again. He was like, you got to sign or we can't do this anymore. And so, like I said, there was no focus on building a production company. And so I decided I didn't want to I didn't want to sign with him. So I left and the very next time he saw me, I was producing Michael Jackson. How was it like producing with Michael Jackson? Uh, it was great. Uh, I, I had this song that I thought was perfect for him. So, so we took the song and we gave it to Babyface's brother. So Babyface's brother had an album that he was working on and he started recording the song. And as we were recording the song, he was like, uh, the guy that's coaching the vocals, he's trying to make me sound too much like Michael Jackson. And he's like, I'm not Michael Jackson. He said, you should just give the song to Michael Jackson. And it's like, boom, the light bulb went off. And I was like, He's right. I was like, who do I know that knows Michael Jackson or can get to Michael Jackson? And that's when I realized six degrees of separation. So I sent the record to Kenny. Kenny played it for Teddy. About two weeks later, I get a phone call and they're like, come to Miami. Michael wants to record the record. So it went from that to Michael Jackson standing like two feet in front of me having a conversation with him. So as he's talking, at some point in the conversation, I just checked out and he sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher. I couldn't even hear anything he was saying and I just started smiling. So I know he was looking at me like, why is this guy smiling at me? But I'm like, Michael Jackson is like, I'm from Greensboro, North Carolina and Michael Jackson is like standing two feet in front of me having this conversation. So it was just like a really cool experience and the record uh, came out. A lot of people love that song. We did a song called Heaven Can Wait. Heaven Can Wait, uh -huh. um, how many stages of popularity that it went through, especially with the timing of his death in 2009? When the album first came out, there were like three songs that everybody was talking about on the album, and Heaven Can Wait was one of them. It was uh, You Rock My World, it was Butterflies, and then it was Heaven Can Wait. And Heaven Can Wait was actually the third single off of the album, but it, at that time he had some uh, differences with his record label. And as usual, they, they shut it down right when that record came out and they stopped promoting the album. Diehard Michael Jackson fans knew the song and, were, and loved the song. And then uh, I would see it, covers of it on YouTube a lot because uh, it's a song that he's really singing really hard on and I saw a lot of people cover it on YouTube. Then when he passed away, you know, with the song being called Heaven Can Wait, of course, there was like 
there was this, this connection that people were having with his death and the song title. Heaven Can Wait started playing more and more on the radio. I would see that the views on YouTube go up, the record sales would go up and things like that. So as he passed away, that song, you know, took on a whole new meaning. People were making these viral videos about him and playing that song in the background. So, you know, I was just happy to be a part of it and, um, you know, people that really like that song so that w it was like a good feeling but um that was that was that when did you get your first grammy um i got my first grammy producing um beyond pr producing for beyonce and um once again six degrees of separation i was in the studio working on boys to men and somebody that went to the art institute of atlanta um, the same school i went to happened to know the engineer and she stopped by to see the engineer. And as she was talking to the engineer, to the engineer, she was like, uh, yeah, I'm working with Beyonce. And so the conversation came up that we went to the same school and she asked me, she said, do you have anything for Beyonce? And I was like, I just might. So <laughs> I had all my tracks with me again, a bunch of tracks. So I picked out like 20 tracks and just gave her a CD of tracks. And um, I didn't hear from them for like about six months. So I was like, maybe they didn't like any of the stuff I gave them. I get the call again in the middle of the night. They're like, Beyonce's gonna be at the Hit Factory tomorrow. She's gonna, she wants you to come in and mix the song. I was like, mix the song? What, what song? She's like, oh, she wrote one of your tracks that you gave her like five months ago. And they just finished the song. This was her first solo record. So she had done love songs, but she had never done a song where she's talking about an intimate encounter with, with a person. And the track that I did before it had this you know, vibe like that. And she was able to pick up on that. And so uh, her, she and her cousin wrote the song and um, it was exactly what I had in mind for the song. And uh, they recorded it and it came out really great. And so uh, I was in there with her mixing it and the album came out. The album did really well and next thing you know, she's at the Grammys and uh, she's on stage and she, she shouts my name. And I wanna thank everyone involved with making this record. Scott Storch, Rich Harrison, Jay-Z, Angela Beyonce, Fanatic, and Bryce, everyone, thank you so much. I want to thank Columbia, of course. I want to thank my parents. Oh, God, this is unbelievable. Uh, Kelly and Michelle, um, Yvette, Don Ironer, Columbia Records, God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> it really turned me on to how important the Grammys are to selling records and how big of a deal it is. And um, so when it was happening, it was happening so fast, I wasn't really able to grasp how uh, impactful that was gonna be. So uh, when, they, when they won, 
you know, I was sitting at home, you know, watching TV, watching the ceremony. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't know if she was going to win. She probably was because it was Beyonce, but she won and <laughs> she, she, she called your name out. And of course, everybody in the world is calling you, telling you, you know, Beyonce just said your name on stage and it was just like a big deal, you know, but it just didn't resonate with me at the time how big it was until you're able to attach that title to your name to people are starting to give you calls to produce records for them because you now are a Grammy, you know, award-winning producer at that point. With the artists that you have worked with, who are some of your favorites? Definitely Beyonce. Definitely Michael. How was Michael. it like being with Beyonce? Oh man, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a really cool experience. We had long conversations in the studio about music. I really got to pick her brain. She picked my brain on different things that we were into. So I know there's a musical connection in there that at some point we will reconnect and do other records together. Um, for me, I never really get into that space of trying to reduplicate that magic because I always look at these experiences like these are once, once in a lifetime experiences that are supposed to happen that you're supposed to learn something from and apply it to the next moment or the next situation. So I rarely try to go back and work with artists that I've already worked with before. Do you still perform? Yes, yes, yes. I actually um, have a band that I put together called, um, well, it's got so many different names. I, I do so many different types of music, so it's like three different projects. So I have my own project, which is Fanatic. I have the Andre Fruition, and I have the Electric Love Hangover. What made you come back to Greensboro to start this business? I was at that point in my career where being a servant to the community was so important to me. And, um, and I know that you can't build your company without the support of your community. So just coming home, I just felt like it was the right time. And everything that I had been searching for that I've been trying to build in New York and L.A. was right here. You see so many great artists never make it because they can't really deal with the business side of the music. So my thing is to come back and try to mentor and educate and help them find their way so that they can still pursue music even when it gets tough. They know how to navigate through those, those rough waters and continue to you know, pursue their dreams. How can people learn more about what you're doing now? Well, we have um, a collective called the Culture Pushers that we started out here. I started it with my partner, uh, Eli Davis. Uh, he manages uh, Anthony Hamilton and Ninth Wonder and has been a uh, management veteran of over 20 years now um, and I partnered with him Charles Whitfield and Joy Cook and you can find the culture pushers on Instagram at the culture pushers we're a collective out here that we're trying to push the culture forward through music and entertainment and we also want to inspire um, you know the community to dream larger than life because we were able to start here and go out into the world and work with all these icons and touch all these people and we want to inspire people to do the same but there is a process to doing that and so we just want to change the culture and the mentality out here and make people believe that you can you can do anything you know you just have to be focused and you have to work really hard and so we we hope through the things that we are doing in the community and the things that we are doing through music, um, you know, we can help people through that process. So we have the Culture Pushers, at the Culture Pushers, go on Instagram. You can find me at Experience Fanatic on Instagram. Same thing on Facebook and on Twitter. It's Mr. Fanatic, at Mr. Fanatic. And um, 
you can follow me on my social media. I'm always working on something. I'm always creating something and always just trying to inspire people to dream larger than life, you know. All right. Well, thank you so much yes. for stopping by the studio. Uh, no and I wish you the best of luck in your future projects. I uh, appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's it for Bel Air Radio. And this is your host, Destiny Collins. Join us here every week, Sirius XM, Channel 142, HBCU.